How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Well, hello, hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to another episode of the Towards Data Science podcast. My name is Jeremy, and I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. I'm super excited about today's topic because it's something I think we should all be learning a lot more about, and that's explainability and interpretability in machine learning. So as algorithms have gotten more and more complex, they've gotten more and more opaque. In other words, being able to understand how and why they make the predictions that they do has gotten harder and harder, but it's also gotten more important. And that's why I'm really excited to talk to my guest today, Bahadur Kalegi, who, apart from being a data scientist at H2O.ai, is also a specialist in AI explainability and interpretability. Um, we're going to be talking about those topics for sure in some depth, as well as getting his thoughts on the data science lifecycle as a whole, among many, many other things. So really looking forward to jumping into this one. Bahadur, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Hi, happy to be here. We're really happy to have you. You're now a data scientist at H2O.ai, but prior to that, you've worked a lot in a lot of interesting companies, including Element AI. Your technical attention, though, has been focused recently on things like explainability in machine learning and interpretability, as well as AutoML, which are just a bunch of really relevant, very important topics of the day. Before we dive into those, though, I just want to start with a bit of background on you and your data science journey. So how did you get into this space to begin with? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, that's a kind of a long story in my case. Uh, you know, my, my background, uh, educational background goes back to years ago, about 20 years ago at this point, actually. So I'm kind of dating myself there. Uh, you know, my undergrad studies was uh, computer engineering. Uh, specifically, I was focused on sort of hardware engineering at the time. You know, I was always interested in like building electronics, building most specifically robots that can interact with people. I was interested in like the social interaction of robots with people in a way that would make our life easier and more fun. Uh, then my master's degree was focused on uh, something called computer vision uh, at the time, uh, which is a sub area of AI machine learning. But you know, back in the day, like AI and machine learning were not like a huge field. They were like you know subfields of study in academia. So I was computer vision, and uh, my PhD eventually was focused on something called information fusion. Uh, which is basically a core problem you have to solve for the robots again uh, to allow them to know where they are, you know, in terms of what's called localization, when you figure out where you are in the space and time, and something called tracking, when you can you know, keep updating your location over time. So if you've heard about things like autonomous cars, they're basically very fancy robots, and that's one of the key problems you also have to solve. That's why they have all these sensors all around them, like LiDAR and like you know, all kinds of other sensors. The idea is to fuse those information and get a better sense of you know where the car is at any point in time. So that's what I did for my studies. I graduated around 2012, like a few years ago at this point. Just, just when AlexNet was coming out too. Yeah, basically. <laughs> at the time, yeah. It was, I mean, and then you know, I, uh, back at the time, like big data 
become a big deal. Was, more focus was on like you know, how much data we have and how much volume and variety and veracity we have. And people were talking about, yeah, we can you know maybe use things like Hadoop because we can process this information at scale. We can extract insights from them, quote unquote, right? And that was a big deal. Machine learning and AI were still kind of overshadowed by big data at the time, right? By, by tooling up big data mainly with Hadoop at the time. Uh, but then I guess around 2013, data scientists uh, as, a, as a career become a thing thanks to the, I guess, Harvard Business School wrote, wrote this article about right. it, introduced it as the hottest you know, career of the 21st century and all that. So it, it gradually became a thing. But the point is, at the time when I graduated, it was not still like a, you know, it was not its own well-defined career thing. It was just like, you know, you would do data science. You didn't necessarily call it data scientist. You didn't call yourself data scientist. Um, the first job I had was in a company uh, focused on what's called telematics. So they were basically collecting information from vehicles, where people were driving them. Then we would analyze those information, try to do what's called activity recognition, try to understand you know, when somebody is driving their car, how good they're driving their car and all that. And then we would score people according to that. And then insurance companies are really interested in knowing that because ideas, if you're a good driver, you probably get a better premium, right? Uh, so that's how I got a kind of, you know, I guess gradually got introduced into the data science field at the time. Again, it was not called data science, but that's what I was doing. Um, the next job I had was with a company, uh, was Tel basically Telspec, a startup based in Toronto. Uh, and Telspec's uh, vision was a cool idea of, you know, maybe using uh, some people's spectroscopy technology, which is, uh, it's just been around for, for a while, you know, in astrophysics and all that, they're using it to figure out uh, what's the composition of stars, you know, start the stuff that's really far away from us based on sort of the, the reflection of light we're getting from them. But they were thinking, okay, what can we use the same technology in a handheld device to figure out what's in our food, right? Wow. Uh, so that involves a lot of predictive modeling, you know, doing things like classification or regression to figure out, you know, whether some sort of allergens in your food as a classifier or some, how much sugar is in your food or macronutrient as a regression model, right? So I was there helping them build their models, deploy it and all that stuff. Um, after that, I moved to another company uh, called Casepan Technology. So they were focused on the idea of you know doing predictive maintenance for airlines. You know, uh, airlines, basic airplanes, get service all around the world. But because that happens all around the world, the data points in terms of what's wrong with the plane doesn't necessarily get connected. So we were looking at the text write-up of defects that was you know, written, written by technicians or pilots, trying to figure out what are the problems that are chronically or repetitively happening bring that to attention of a company like an airline so they can service a plane in time and avoid disasters. So it was really cool because they had an actual product, you know, that was working already. Again, they were using AI behind the scene, as we call it, yep. but it was a combination of traditional AI, like rule-based system, plus things like word embedding at the time it just came out. It was sort of a hybrid solution, but it was working fine. Uh, it was in charge of, you know, maintaining it, improving it and all that. Um, yeah, and then the, we're back from there. You know, I moved to another company called uh, Two Cows, the Canadian company, one of the pioneers of internet. I was doing some, you know, they, they work with their customer data, trying to look into problems like churn, why people you know, leave their company, and like things like system analysis of the raw customer feedback text and all that. And the last two companies, you already mentioned them, Element AI and you know, more recently H2O. Uh, Element AI is a uh, I'm not sure if your audience knows about them all that much. They're pretty well known in Canada, as you probably know. Uh, they're a unicorn startup in a sense uh, because they're, they're started off, you know, with like a massive funding of hundred million dollars. Yeah, I think it was the single biggest, maybe Series A round in Canadian history, if I'm not wrong. Absolutely, yeah, that was I guess by a large margin, it was really, really high. I mean, at the time, 2017, when they rose that kind of money, it was like AI was really booming. It still is booming, but that back then it was really intense, especially when it came to VCs and all that. 
And because of the ties they had, because of the high credibility that Element had in terms of having, let's say, people like Yashio Benjiu, one of the co-founders and father of deep learning as one of the co-founders, uh, they had a lot of credibility. So I guess, and also the idea behind the company, which I'm going to explain in a second, I guess, there was that kind of money. Maybe we can dive into that, the idea behind the company, because there was a lot of confusion in Canada around what Element AI was really doing for a while. What the plan was, I remember having a conversation with one of the seed investors from 500 Startups, and he was saying, yeah, like there have been some changes internally, so that a lot of rethinking the the, the strategy. So yeah, what, what is Element AI up to? Yeah, sure. That's it. I mean, uh, that was part of the, the thing. So if I were to summarize what the ultimate goal of Element AI was, it was, you know, they were really trying to develop very sophisticated AI-based solutions in the true meaning of the term, meaning that they were literally trying to use a state-of-the-art technologies. Let's say, you know, deep neural networks, deep neural networks with attention and all that, like very, very advanced stuff. That's generally not in the arena of applied, you know, science or industry, right? They're trying to bring that into industry and build products with that. And not just do one product, they're trying to build multiple products on top of it. And it's a very massive problem to tackle, right? Just imagine just winning one product using the state-of-the-art technology is very difficult. It was, or the idea, the key yeah. idea of Element was, and I believe it still is, that you can, you know, maybe tackle this problem by you know, breaking it into like sub problems, right? Maybe you can actually have like sort of AI platform that you know allows you to develop components of a product. Let's say a machine learning product that's very advanced has some sort of natural language processing components, some sort of vision components, and so on. If you can develop these components in isolation and you know, quickly integrate them into a product, right? You can you. Know, you can start you like a Lego, right? You can have these Lego pieces that you've developed. You can quickly assemble them into a product and introduce it to the market. So that has huge potential if you can get it right. But of course, it's a very, very challenging thing to do because there's no precedence of something that yeah. like this being done. And you know, AI itself is moving fast and so many other challenges that got in the way. But that was the main premise of the company. And I believe that's partially why they got so much funding. And so that's sort of a big bet on modularity and our ability to basically break up problems, as you said, into smaller chunks. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's sort of interesting because I guess in a way it makes sense. We've seen modularity work a lot on mm -hmm. DevOps, for example, with the, the development of DevOps and, and other areas like that. Uh, the data science life cycle kind of getting chopped up in those, in those pieces. But yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like a really robust challenge. I guess H2O is working on something not entirely dissimilar, but uh, from a different perspective almost, like creating the tooling for people to just develop their own stuff more efficiently. Is that fair to say? Right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, mean, you know, I mean, I'm actually trying to summarize some of these things. You mentioned the idea of sort of a machine learning workflow or pipeline briefly, right? The fact that people are trying to modularize it. And that's exactly true. Like the, the more you know, people look at it, the more time I personally spend in this field, the more I realize it's literally like, you know, in order for you to build an actually AI solution, machine learning solution, you have to have all the steps you know, a huge pipeline figure, right? So that there at least, at least in the blog post I'm writing right now, there's at least like 12 steps I can, you know, consider for that pipeline. So it's a very massive pipeline. And it's a pipeline that you have to, you don't just go through it yeah. once, right? You have to go through it maybe a few times because they're modeled, are, you know, like they're actually modeling yes, yes. reality, which is very dynamic. So as that changes, you have to rebuild the model, you have to rerun the pipeline and all that. So you have to be able to do it very quickly. The other thing is, you know, most people are focused, if you consider, I'm a car person, so I like to use, you know, car analogies. If you consider like a pipeline that you use in, or assembly lines they use for like building cars today, right? There's many steps to that. Yes, one of the major steps is building an engine, assembling the engine, but that's not the whole story, right? So it's exact same thing applies, I feel like, to the machine learning as a solution. For you to build a machine learning solution, yes, it's important to develop a model as an engine of that, but there's so many other components to that. You need a chassis, you need to have, you know, like all electronics figured, all the safety tests and everything. So that's exact 
accenting your yep. discovering with AI. There's so much. Uh, actually, actually, Google wrote this art, nice article on technical death in machine learning. There's a couple of years, which basically talks about exact same thing, yes, right? Yeah. Because they've actually done it, by the way, right? They're one of the pioneers of actually productizing all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, but more people are understanding it. And then there are companies like H2O and Element, they're trying to approach this problem of how do we go about maybe implementing this you know pipeline in an efficient way in the fastest way with the list amount of like resources and talent because data science is talent is expensive and also eventually how can we make it trustworthy and transparent to help with adoption right so the thing i'm actually seeing it is like okay you need right. to figure out three categories of problems when it comes to implementing that machine learning workflow or pipeline there's a matter of you know time so you want to be able to experiment very quickly and actually very quickly so you need to be doing for that right you need to have to do it, you know, with like limited amount of talent, do you have like a data science team of two or three people, not an army of people? So how do you make them more efficient? Again, auto ML is going to be helpful there. And finally, the notion of transparency and trust. How do you make it more transparent? Not having a black box, and so all that stuff has to be, you know, taken care of. And I believe uh, uh, the approach that Element that I took to this was to your point, mostly modularity and the Lego idea. The approach that HTO is taking is more about okay, let's try to automate as much as we can, right? To help with notion of time and maybe you know the talent shortage and also the transparency side. I was planning on setting almost the entirety of our conversation aside to talk about explainable AI, to talk about AutoML, um, but you've just opened up this great Pandora's box that, that I think is really worth digging into. There's this idea, as you said, of like the modularity of that, that data science pipeline defining steps in some way arbitrarily, because it's true that there isn't actually a profound, deep, transcendent cutoff point between data exploration and modeling, for example. You mm -hmm. can't actually split those up. But when you try to do this like big vertical integration and you don't break things up, you create interactions that make it much harder to control mm -hmm. for each step individually, mm -hmm. and I guess debug mm -hmm. things. So I guess, I guess, is that like, is that all the value of the modularity, or are there other kind of benefits to it as well that I'm that I'm not thinking about? Maybe I would say that's the main one, right? I mean, to your point exactly, you know, it's very hard to define very sort of crisp modules. Like, okay, here is when the exploration ends, here is when the like modeling starts, because a lot of times it's sort of a back and forth between these, right? You do some exploration of data, you, maybe you try some model, you go back and all that. And I also that's why that's why I believe having platforms that automate some of that stuff is very useful because. It, a lot of experimentations, there's a lot of back and forth, which is just honestly literally like just that's you know, grind work, right? Yeah. So what if we actually maybe turn that, and that's the core idea behind AutoML, it's not, AutoML is not about, oh, let's go and let machines and AI figure out how to learn stuff. It's all about turning most of these steps that are highly interactive and back and forth into sort of like a search problem. When, you, when you're looking for the ideal, you know, maybe future transformation that works best with a certain type of model with a certain type of hyperparameters for that model, right? It's actually in a multi-dimensional search problem, let's use AI machine learning and any sort of algorithm approach to solve for that, right? That's to me what the core of AutoML is all about. It's going to be super helpful because, you know, instead of data scientists spending so much of their time doing this back and forth game and just getting somewhere maybe, right? You, you're literally searching this massive space of models, feature combinations, hyperparameters, using the computational power of machines, which are getting better every day, right? So sooner or later machines are going to win in that sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean that's why I feel like it's, it has a huge promise for the future of AI. It's a huge, it's a, it's a substantial component to that. Again, going back to the notion of time and talent, because that's one of the main th two things that are missing in the field in terms of you know, making AI happen at enterprise level. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of the recognition that in some sense every single attribute of a data science pipeline is a hyperparameter. 
is just in service of optimizing this thing that you're trying to optimize, your you know, number of features, the features that you use, the feature engineering, in a way, those are just meta decisions, right? That's an interesting analogy, actually. Yes, actually, that connects us to another uh, field I'm not an expert at, but it was actually very heavily studied by people at Element AI called meta-learning, which you might have heard about that. But you're trying to actually develop a new machine learning framework, which is all about, okay, how can we even learn what is the best way we can approach a search problem, right? right? Because the, the search problem we just discussed, which is tuning all the meta-meta hyperparameters or whatever of a yeah. pipeline in this case, right? It's still a search problem. But what is the best way of solving this problem? It really depends on which context, what type of data, what type of problem, right? So meta-learning is all about how you go about strategizing for that solving that search problem in general, right? Uh, so if, if I want to give you an example, what what's happening with H2O and their AutoML, so first of all, they have two solutions. They have the open source solution, which is called H203 AutoML, which everybody can go ahead and use. Uh, it's very powerful, it's very scalable. We can run it on top of Hadoop and all that. And then they have the enterprise solution called Driverless AI. Uh, but both of these methods under the hood, the way to solve this search problem is by using uh, something called a genetic algorithm approach, which is the way actually evolution itself works. So you have you know, any of these possible you know, options of feature or model or hyperparameters as a gene expression, you can imagine, right? And you have a pool of these gene expressions as a possible set of solutions at any moment in time. And then you go about refining that or evolving that pool of genes, you know, using certain operators like mutation or you know, crossover, or whatever, very similar to the way that you know the evolution works. And then over time you kind of make it better, right? But that's just one way of solving a certain problem, right? Just for, for people who aren't familiar with genetic algorithms, um, so essentially the idea is you have a gene that is defined as a set of hyperparameter choices, something like that. And then you can imagine splicing, like exchanging different hyperparameter values between genes and seeing which ones perform best and recombining them. Yeah, that, that's pretty much the idea, exactly. And then at, at any iteration, just like in genetic pool in, in humanity, right? So you have certain genes that kind of you know, like survive to the next level, the ones that are the fittest, and that relies on the notion of the fit, fitness function. So how good of a gene it is, how good of a solution that is, right? That's going to survive to the next level of evolution. The ones that are not so well, they're going to be cut off and they're not going to survive, right? And also the notion of mutation is there because, so the whole thing, again, any search problem, there's this fundamental notion of, you know, exploitation, exploration, yep. approach, right? So you want, at any point in time, you want to exploit as much as you have learned in the past, but you also want to explore for new options. And genetic algorithms lend themselves to that idea very well because you know anything that you want to exploit is going to survive. Anything you want to explore, you're going to mutate, right? You want to see what else what would happen if I were to change, change the model parameters over here a little bit, you know, and all that. So I, I feel like that's partially why they picked it, uh, H2O as a you know as a powerful way of tackling this search problem. And I guess OpenAI, if I'm if I'm not wrong, maybe this is like back in 2016 or 2017 now, but OpenAI I think published a paper about genetic algorithms and how they're surprisingly effective for for certain applications at least, right? I mean, it's an old technique, but it works really well. Yeah, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, I remember I saw that paper just a few years ago, and I feel like they were doing what's called neural. Um, Architecture search or NAS, which is yes. you know in the context of neural networks, that's still a huge art. How do you go about you know figuring out what's the best architecture for certain vision problem or text problem, right? What if you can automate that? That's again another search problem. And it's a very cumbersome, very difficult thing to do because you can imagine how difficult it is to train just a single neural network that's massive, right? So you want to be really, very really strategic, very, very efficient about it. And to your point, yeah, they were actually relying on genetic algorithm to automate some of that, although that was massively expensive. They could yeah. only, yeah. only they could do it. Yeah, like, I don't know, like 100 TPUs or something to make it happen, but it actually showed to be very, very efficient. And honestly, I'm not personally all that surprised because I feel like, you know, just going back to nature, right? Nature has already solved a lot of very complex uh, mathematical problems. And if, we, if that's what nature uses, that probably there's some sort of merit to it, right? So why do we invent 
the wheel. And I guess that's the inspiration for GAs too, which is really cool. Now, one topic I do want to make sure we touch on, because this is an area where you have a lot of deep expertise, and I think it's something increasingly that's becoming more and more important, is this idea of explainable AI. So what I'd like to do is just ask you to open things up, like what is XAI? What is explainable AI and why is it so important? Sure. Great question. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess we kind of talked about, you know, what's lacking for enterprise machine learning, notion of time and the notion of talent being lacking. The third one, of course, is that it's not being adopted all that well. People are kind of resisting it. And there's, of course, this, you know, social technical, it's a social, it's a social technical problem. It's not a completely technical problem, right? But when it comes to the technical side of it, the problem is that, you know, we have this, AI is not a brand new thing. AI has been around for maybe 50, 60 years, right? And traditionally, we have AI solutions that are more easier to understand, mostly relying on linear models and all that. And people had an easier time, you know, dealing with them and adopting them because they're easier to understand. More recent, you know, breed of, you know, AI models, specifically things like deep neural networks, right? They're very powerful, but at the same time, they're so complex that it's much harder for us to wrap our mind around them, right? So they're notorious for being so-called black boxes in the sense that it's not, they're not black boxes, you can see everything, right? You can see all the parameters, all the layers. In case of ResNets for new image processing, for example, you have like up to like a thousand layers, but yeah. that's not really telling you much about what's actually going on in there. So it is this kind of black box in that sense, right? So explainability also has been around for at least 20, 30 years in AI along with it, but it become much more prominent because of this increased complexity of the models, the need for it became a lot more prominent because we're like, okay, let's put these, you know, very complex deep model that seems to be doing a great job in this very mission critical application. Let's say, I don't know, like you're telling people whether or not they have cancer. If you're, if you're wrong, it's just they're disastrous, right? But you have no idea how the model is coming up with this decision. So what's happening under the hood, right? So as a result, there's been like an explosion in terms of methodologies and ways of going about explainability in the last few years or so for good reasons. Uh, so that's, the, that's sort of the driver. In terms of what it exactly means to explain the model, I would say, again, it also depends because, you know, uh, you can imagine even for day-to-day -day life, if you were to ask, okay, why did you do something? There's lots of ways for you to explain or justify your decision, and you can do it at different level of granularity, right? Like, you can be very, very vague and abstract about it. It can be much more detailed. But again, you have to kind of tweak that answer or the explanation to your end user's level of sophistication. If you're explaining, you know, something to a kid, who's like, you know, five years old versus somebody who's like a 20-year-old adult versus who somebody's an expert, the explanation needs to be different accordingly, right? So the same thing applies to explanations. There's no unique answer as to what they are, but oftentimes, at least so far, the explanations we've had has been in terms of, okay, you have this machine learning model, it has features that go in, there's this output that comes out. Let's say, what is the importance of features? You know, which, which features are the most important ones, right? Or maybe you can turn that model or approximate that complex model with something like a decision tree, which kind of mimics its prediction, but it's easier to understand and so on and so forth. So you've had things like this, which are honestly mostly driven by what AI people feel like as a good choice for explanations, not necessarily what's best for audience. That's the story you can get to, but yeah. Yeah, no, but I think that's such an important distinction because to, I think to, to many people, they fall into the trap of, I think you've referred to this as, uh, I'm trying to think if it was the blind leading the blind, essentially, at some point during one of your talks, the, the idea that, you know, if you have technical people who are in charge of deciding what a good explanation is, what level of abstraction is good, uh, then you end up with very technical answers to questions that need to be answered in some cases with business logic, in some cases with language that's very abstract and not technical or granular at all. So how do you how do you think about the tuning of the the level of abstraction for the given audience? Are there different tools that you can use, for example, to 
to target to one group or another? Actually, that's a great question. And unfortunately, as, as far as I know, not at the moment. So you know, I'm, I'm going to use an analogy maybe here that would be helpful for our audience to understand this better. You know, if you're somebody who's been in the software world for the last, the last 20 or 30 years, you probably remember back in the 90s and early 2000s when the software was really good overall in terms of functionality. But the interface to our software was really bad. It was very poor. I'll give you an example. Maybe in our cars, our entertainment systems were really crappy. We had no idea what was going on. They were very hard to use. But then we have the introduction of something called user experience as a field, or for more mobile apps, the same story, right? And all that user experience is all about is to design a better interface to help us interface with that software. The software itself as a core hasn't really changed all that much, but our understanding of it and our you know, ability to interact with it in a sort of natural, organic way has changed a lot. I feel like we need the exact same thing to happen in you know, machine learning AI world. We have AI solutions right now that are very performant, very capable, but the way they will interact with us is so clunky and so hard to figure out, right? So we right. need people who are like, AI user experts, or sorry, AI user experience people who will help us figure out and gauge a nice interface according to the context, according to the machine learning model to help with that, right? And that's just at, at the very beginning. So uh, the, I guess the article you mentioned is, is written by Tim Miller. It's called Inmates Running the Asylum. And that's exactly the analogy he's that's drawing it, yeah. in there. He's comparing with AI, you know. So it's like, you know, inmates being AI experts are developing this AI explanations for themselves. It makes perfect sense to them. But to a layperson off the street, they have no idea what's going on, right? So we still have somebody to kind of step in and bridge the gap because there's a huge gap there. Speaking of other things that you've talked about in this context too, I was just watching a couple of your talks at TMLS. I thought they were really interesting, or actually one in particular. So you talk about model robustness, which is a concept that's kind of interestingly closely related to explainability. But I suspect most people, especially if they're more focused on the classical machine learning side rather than you know neural networks and deep learning, won't be super right. familiar with the idea of robustness as a concept. Um, can you explain what robustness is, what it means? Sure. I mean, uh, that's, again, that's a huge area of AI by itself, but uh, and there's many different you know, cases of it. But maybe the most prominent example that some, your audience might have come across, especially in like, popular media, is in the field of what's called adversarial machine learning. And the idea there is that, especially with things like you know, neural networks and deep models, you know, let's say you have this image classifier that's telling you something is a cat versus a dog. It's not very difficult for you to manipulate the input to that model, you know, in a way that there's no perceivable change to that input to human. However, you're going to change, I don't know, basically manipulate the output of that model. That let's say you're fitting an image of a panda or a panda. That's a classic example. You add some noise to that, engineer noise, and all of a sudden, the model is telling you with 99%, you know, confidence, oh, it's, it's maybe like a cat or maybe it's like something totally irrelevant, like an airplane, right? And that's a huge, you know, source for concern because, you know, what if that model was in production and somebody came in and were to manipulate that, right? So that's one of the major areas of robustness that people are trying to look at. They're trying to figure out how can we maybe develop a model or even train a model in a way that it's less susceptible to that kind of attack, right? Am I right, by the way, to, uh, to look at robustness as a consequence or a manifestation of overfitting because when you when you look at let's say you take an image of a cat if i can if i can fool a neural network into thinking that this is an image of a dog by taking one pixel and changing its color slightly then presumably what that implies is that this model is really kind of using cues that it shouldn't be using it shouldn't depend on that pixel in that way to make that prediction right yeah, that's actually a great segue to what I was going to say. That's exactly the point. You know, like, again, it's a huge matter of debate. Exactly. There's a lot of people who are trying to understand theoretically what's happening with these models and why they're doing this. But that's definitely part of the reason. But even a bigger problem, you know, for with all machine learning models, including all the advanced deep learning models we have right now, is lack of what's called common sense, right? And that's exactly what you were saying, that 
you know, when they're making, making their decisions under the hood, they are relying on some sort of what you call the feature representation of input, right? So let's say you feed an image to a deep model that's doing image classification. That model is not looking at all the pixel values directly. Under the hood, it's coming over its own representation of that data and looking yeah. at that and then making decision, right? And here's the, where the connection to explainability comes in because there's been some recent studies that basically shows the reason you have this you know, lack of robustness uh, you know, you can manipulate the input. There's no change to a human to the input, but the output changes is because you have what they call these non-robust features. These features that internally models in engineering, right? Let's say it's not looking at your point you know, for facial recognition, the shape of the noise or the neck or whatever. It's relying on some weird combination of things that are not robust features, right? So when you change the input, you actually make a huge change to you know, implicit features that are not robust as a result of output changes, right? To a human, you're surprised because you assume because the model was superhuman level, it's thinking like you, but the thinking process which relies on those implicit features is nowhere near what you thought, right? And then they're basically based off this premise, they're like, okay, let's actually develop our models to kind of enforce the features to be more explainable or to be more robust. That's the idea, right? So to be more closer to the way people think, right? And I feel like that's a huge, that's a huge, uh, like, you know, um, I know that's, that's a very promising direction for research in the future because that's directly tying explainability on models and explainable feature engineering to model robustness and all that. And it would, it would make everything a lot more easier and you know, uh, more, more, more graspable, basically. There's actually connected to that, I'm just going to mention, there's a work uh, by uh, somebody called Cynthia Rudin. Uh, she's a professor at the university, at Duke University. And she's been actually doing explainability for the last two years or so. And more recent work of hers is actually focused specifically on explainable modeling and how you can go about, even for a deep model, to do what I just said exactly. How you can go about you know, enforcing the features of a deep model to be more explainable, and as a result, having a model that is more robust, but also more explainable. So basically, the, the two are not really, you know, the two are kind of not, um, you know, uh, what's the right term here? The two are complementary. That yeah. be looked at separately. Is it fair to say then that um, robustness acts as almost a kind of regularization type constraint then? In a sense, yes. It's basically, you know, I think that's exactly what Cynthia Rudin is, is trying to propose. She's actually working on a literal theory that basically says, you know, especially when it comes to neural networks, uh, you know, they work by, you know, looking for a set of weights that will optimize a cost function, right? So it's basically an optimization function. But every time you get a model, you basically end up with a local minimum, like a possible yep. solution. But there's lots and lots of these solutions out there, right? And what she says is exactly that. If you were to regularize that optimization process in a way that you end up with a solution, that's not just high performance and accurate, it's also explainable, right? She said, because I have so many options that are possible, at least in theory, it's always possible to come up, you know, by using the right kind of regularization, right? With the right local minima that is explainable, but also, you know, performant and accurate. I suspect something similar is true of human beings, actually, in terms of our reasoning ability. We kind of do this, I think, where, like a conspiracy, for example, is probably a good example of, an, of a case where human beings are overfitting. They, they, they leverage a whole host of features, right? We say, um, I believe, for example, that uh, Elvis is still alive and it's being covered up by the U.S. government. And when you push me on that, I'll end up giving you a whole bunch of features because I've done a ton of research. So my feature set is immense. But when you start to ask me to explain 
how those pieces come together, things like that's one way to, to perturb things to make the whole house of cards fall apart, hopefully. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a valid analogy, but it sort of seems maybe related here. That's a very interesting analogy. I never thought about it, but that could that could make a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, it's simply because your point, you have all these features, right? Now some of them are completely not robust. You start to draw all these weird conclusions at the end, which are completely sometimes, not always, of course, right? Nonsensical. I feel like, yeah, I mean, that, that could be exactly what happened. Because to your point, maybe the models are trying to do the same thing. They're trying to, every feature representation models are come up with is a way of looking at reality, basically, right? Yeah. And you can imagine what neural networks have done very well is basically for, for the cases that when you, for the feature representation, you know, reality is very nonlinear, right? Let's say if it's unstructured text or image, you don't have just simple linear mapping from one space to the other. You need a very nonlinear relationship. You can discover that. But it's also very error prone in the sense that you can see the reality in that sense, right? Which makes prediction much easier. You just put it like a, one, one last layer, which is like a sigmoid linear you know, layer at the end. Boom, you have your classifier. But you could have completely, you know, weird, you know, yeah. way of reality, right? Which is helping in this case, but overall maybe it's not so useful, right? Um, that actually maybe it's a good nice segue to go back to something else that's you know explorable is super useful at, and it's exactly doing this, which is you know maybe some of these feature representations that you've come up with are actually certain like simply an artifact of your training data. And a classic example is basically you know that was actually in the literature is like imagine you have this model that's you know doing image classification and. Uh, it's you know it's telling you an image of a husky is actually a wolf, right? And by looking at you, like okay, maybe it's okay because husky and wolf are kind of similar looking creatures, right? But if you're looking to explanation as to what are the pixels the model is looking at for that classification, you realize it's not even looking at any of the pixels of the husky in this case. You know, it's literally looking at the background snow, right? So that's right. the reality is relying on why? Because in the majority of the training samples, when the model was shown that image of an animal, right, had snow in them, and the model has no idea what's what. It's just going to go, okay, I'm going to you know, receive background always, and that's going to tell me whether or not there's husky in there. Right, so yep. that's a very important thing to consider before you put things in production. Because if you don't, then you have all kinds of unexpected behavior in production, right? Yeah, and I, I guess the the unexpected behavior in production is a consequence of the opacity of the model. Like it's it's difficult to like look at your model directly, as you said. That's why explainability is important. It occurs to me that maybe there's a also a connection here with the AutoML side because AutoML in a way kind of risks making machine learning, which already has some concerning black box characteristics, even more opaque since we lose direct access to things like feature engineering and model selection. Um, is explainability something that we should be more concerned about when we start applying auto ML techniques as well? Absolutely, uh, I would definitely say so. Because like, in, at least when you're doing things your your way as a data scientist or whatever, you're owning the whole process. You at least have some sense of what the model is doing under the hood based on your experience. With a lot of auto ML tools, yes, you're controlling the process. You're maybe configuring or doing advanced configuration to figure things out and help this you know this, the platform to come up with the solution. But you have a lot less knowledge as to what exactly went on, right? Because it was basically purely abstract search problem, like we were saying initially and then bam you have the solution that came out so having some sort of explanation or lots of different explanations maybe right that will tell you you know what the models are running at what kind of features is looking at how is processing those features is even more important in this case and also in terms of what are even the parameters or the hyperparameters that the model looked at to get to that point right so yeah. trying to make the whole process and the search process in this case much more transparent is essential and that's why for example in h2o as i understand it within driverless they have a complete pipeline called machine learning interpretability which is all about that it's all about you know giving you like 10 different type of explanations you know for different models the model that the, the platform is producing they also give you like you know the documentation as to what are the steps that the model took what are the hyperparameters and all the features
features that are engineered, what do they mean? All that stuff has been documented for the for the end user to really understand what's going on uh, before they actually put things in production because you know that's the last thing you want to do. Well then, okay, from a more selfish standpoint though, because so much stuff is being accomplished by, especially companies like, I mean, H2O.ai obviously is a big leader in this. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts in terms of the automation of different parts of the data science lifecycle and what that means for the role of data scientists going forward? Are we going to see a contraction in terms of the, the demand for data science or just a, a difference in terms of what the roles involve and what kinds of problems people are solving? That's a good question. And, you know, I mean, I believe, I mean, what's going to happen, at least if it's things done the right way, going back to the sort of the workflow we talked about, right? You know, there's so many steps of the workflow, especially early on. So you start from you know, identifying what's called like, you know, business opportunity, right? So a lot of bigger companies they have a ton of data, they have lots of opportunities, they don't even know where to begin, right? What is the highest priority or the low-hanging fruit, right? And oftentimes because of this, this, you know, the whole going through the whole workflow is so difficult, right? Coming up with the feasibility of how do things are and all that stuff, if you don't do everything manually, is very difficult. Right? If you're doing auto ML, if you're a data scientist, you can you know, quickly get a sense of, okay, that's a baseline solution I can develop for this thing in a few hours. That tells me how doable this problem is. Let's just move on. Let's continue with that, right? So I guess my point is, there's certain steps like problem definitions or like you know, solution definition or like validation at the very end. You definitely want to be the uh, you know, somebody who's owning the whole thing and if somebody who's kind of putting a stamp on it still, right? That has to be a person. But there's all the steps in between, like feature engineering, model selection, model tuning. You want actually people and machines to kind of work together on them, right? Not just completely automated, not just completely manual. It's a nice hybrid kind of collaborative environment when machines are, uh, you know, basically humans are working together. There's actually a great example of that, which is uh, something called generative design. Uh, there's a company called Autodesk that's been doing it for, for, for a few years already. And it's a really cool idea, you know, they're trying to develop all kinds of cool, you know, designs for chassis, like all kinds of different things. And what they do is that they basically give this interface to a designer and they can control certain parameters. And then under the hood, they're using very advanced generative AI models to give the designer a certain design. And then you can start to play with it, figure out, okay, is it what I want? Is it not what I want? And maybe iterate, right? Yeah. So it's a very nice human in the loop kind of process. I feel like what's going to happen over time, we have more and more of machines and you know, humans working together. It's not, you know, like data scientists being replaced, like some companies are you know, promoting out there. It's literally, you know, machines and uh, humans working together more closely. And I feel like, again, this is, this is in the context of AutoML, right? I feel like that's also where explainability plays a huge role because if machines and AMX want to work together, we be able to talk the same language, right? So we need to bridge that gap of understanding using things like explainability. So it's all sort of nice, you know, working nicely together, but we're kind of discovering the pieces of the puzzle over time. Maybe we're just, you know, we're discussing them separately. What I feel like, you know, my mission is to kind of discuss all this stuff in a holistic way because to, more, to me, they're all connected pieces of the same puzzle, which is how do we make AI happen in enterprise? You know, they're not just one or the other. Yeah, I guess as long as our data engineers are siloed away from our data analysts and, and our data scientists, we're losing opportunities for like interaction terms, let's say, in the, uh, in the overall system. Exactly, right? And then maybe for them to have time to collaborate more often, they need to actually abstract away all the grind work and all that stuff that is just repetitive work, right? So they have time to actually have more meetings, more discussions, and then figure out the high-level parameters and let the stuff happen under the hood, right? Well, and I imagine then that one of the implications of what you're saying is we find over time data scientists becoming having to become more and more business savvy, more and more product savvy, starting to develop an understanding for uh, subject matter expertise and so on. Um, is that something, I guess that's something that's probably already happening, right? I would definitely say so. Yeah, it's like, you know, in a day, you know, uh, 
I, I like to use that analogy of doctors, right? Like, maybe 300 years ago, we had just you know, GPs everywhere, right? All the generic doctors. And, uh, but now we have all kinds of specialists. I feel like the exact same thing would happen to data scientists. They have to be specialized in a certain way, especially you know, if you just care about getting like baseline performance. Yeah, you can have like, you know, like a jack of like, you know, like a jack of all trades kind of people. But over time, as we expect more and more from our AI solutions, people have to specialize because a big part of, you know, developing a good model and having a good understanding of data, especially when it comes to engineering, right? And without good features, it's just, you know, basically pretty much doomed, right? So that's what I feel like is going to happen over time. You have more and more specialization. And uh, we have maybe some, you know, family data scientists, but we have, of course, a specialist data scientist down the road. <laughs> you know, somebody will be writing you a prescription or something to see the, uh, to see the specialist, yeah. Exactly. If you just have like a basic problem with AI, you go to like a you know, family data scientist. But if you have some more advanced, unique problem, you have to go to a specialist, right? And I guess, yeah, company scale will probably affect this too, where you have companies with resources where the decisions have, you know, multi-million dollar uh, price tags associated with them. And then you really want to have a specialist. And, that, and that's where this really comes important. Exactly. Or get the extra 1% or 0.1% of a performance out of the model because that could make a few million dollar difference in revenue or whatever. Right? Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, one last question. We've done such a, a fascinating tour of, I feel like, all of data science at this point, but I do want to ask you the last question. What recommendations would you have to somebody who's trying to break into data science today? If Knowing what you know about the direction infrastructure is heading in, the demands in industry right now, if somebody's like, let's say they're at the point where they've got, you know, Jupyter Notebooks, Scikit-Learn, Pandas, they've got SQL down, you know, the basics, but they're trying to level up and really get ready for that for that job. What are some recommendations you might have for them? That's a great question. You know, I would say if I were to go back in time and repeat what I did, uh, the main thing I would do is, I mean, you need to first of all lay down a foundation for yourself, right? So, you know, if you're starting starting from some other fields, if you were like a developer from the previous, you know, job of yours, or if you're like a STEM person or whatever, just you know, figure out all the basics of AI. There's all kinds of cool tools and courses like AI and whatever you can go and learn about, right? You can even do it in your spare time or whatever. But then the next step, if you want to really figure out how AI works and what are the real challenges, start to play with real world problems. And for that, I guess Kaggle is, is a very good platform you can start with because these data, data sets are real, right? Don't yeah. stick just to MNIST or just, you know, like old academic data sets because they're great, but the, the, the main thing they're hiding there is like the data you're given is very idealistic, right? It's already clean, everything's already figured out. It's very, very rare that in reality you get that. So it's like basically they've done 80% of the job for you. They're giving you this 19 data set and you just do the cool molding piece. But again, going back to the whole you know data science workflow, not just being the engine, you need to figure out how to do the rest of the stuff to, to be able to build yeah. your own, let's say, handmade car, right? So go go and start playing with you know like reward data sets as much as you can and then start to get a job, you know, even even means like a startup. There's all kinds of AI startups right now. Try, try to tackle all kinds of, you know, uh, AI problems that are real world problems. Try to work in there and, you know, basically, you know, build up your experience from there. But don't be stuck with just, you know, like pure academic research stuff forever. Unless you want to just do pure fundamental research, which is a very different path. But if you want to actually apply it, you know, try to move quickly from fundamentals to real world applications and start to apply your knowledge. Yeah, I love that philosophy in a way. It's kind of like having good training labels. You want to make sure that you're you're training for the actual job requirements rather than overfitting to like academics or overfitting to things that aren't aren't concrete. Exactly. Yeah, and maybe that, that's a great great point. Maybe also a specialization in that case would start to make sense to you. Maybe you're more you know interested in a certain area of AI, explainability, NLP, whatever. Maybe try to figure that out and be more focused also because the field is growing so rapidly and is so wide open at this point that nobody can claim to know everything. And that's why maybe like imposter syndrome is a yeah, huge yeah. problem in the side. A lot of us are trying to do everything, right? And it's simply impossible for one person. It's, it's, honestly, there's no point even in doing that because 
the whole point, I guess, for us is to figure out where do we fit best and then collaborate together to get things done. Just like in society, you have different specialization. Again, in the data science space, you need to have the same set of, you know, uh, organization of expertise and then collaboration on top of it. Yeah. So maybe focus more on what you know, what you can do rather than what you don't know. Exactly. And figure out what you're gravitating most towards and then maybe focus on that as your area of specialty and just take it from there. Awesome. Well, really appreciate it. Really appreciate all the insights. Bahadur, this has been a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Do you have a social media link or anywhere where people can follow you to, to hear more about what you have to say on, on the AI side? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm actually, you know, I'm on, on uh, LinkedIn. So I've been there for a while. You can just search for my name. Like, I'll be happy to connect to people on LinkedIn. I'm also on uh, Medium. I have a lot of articles in Medium. I'm not on Twitter just yet. And maybe I should because I know it's, it's a, you know, it's being heavily used in social media. But I will say for now, LinkedIn uh, and, you know, basically uh, my Medium account are places people can reach out to me and we can have a, you know, conversation. Awesome. Then we'll make sure to post all the links we can in the uh, blog post that will accompany this podcast as well so people can find you. Thanks so much, Bahadur. I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you.